Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're talking with Ethan Petrasky, partner at Venrock in Palo Alto, California. Ethan invests across sectors with a particular focus on hard engineering problems, such as developer infrastructure, advanced computing, and space technologies. Ethan has over 15 years experience as a founder and executive leader. Most recently, he held leadership roles at Facebook, leading to ads, product, and engineering efforts, and overseeing a $15 billion run rate business. Prior to Facebook, he led product growth and design as VP of product and design at Box through their IPO. In this episode, we're gonna dive into our shared investment in Astronomer and why they invested, as well as the space frontier and how communication will change and use cases will start to emerge that we're not even thinking about today. The biggest theme or so what, I hope you can take away from this conversation, is the importance of being a great product leader. The product leader's responsibility is to make the problem very clear and then evangelize this to the rest of the organization. This creates empathy, answering the who, what, and why you're solving a problem. It allows both product and engineering to feel closer to the customer. Please enjoy my conversation with Ethan Petrasky. Hello, Ethan. Welcome to Fast Frontiers. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great to have you on. The, as you know, you know we've we've developed this podcast, Fast Frontiers, for entrepreneurs and particularly entrepreneurs in new frontiers that may be outside Silicon Valley. And you're a Silicon Valley resident, uh, VC, born and raised in in the Bay Area, right? But right. Uh, but you have a connection. You have a connection here into the Midwest and uh, more than one connection because now we're connected in a joint investment, which is astronomer.io. But tell us a little bit about your journey. You you are a, I, I would say, kind of product product guru extraordinaire. That's that's very sweet of you to say and checks in the mail. Thanks for uh, continuing <laughs> to say the good things about me. I, I feel like I've been paying you the big bucks. You know, I, I, I've been in venture for little over four years now, but before that, I spent 15 years as a founder and operator myself. Um, I actually started my undergrad uh, as uh, an astrophysics uh, focus, thinking that I was going to go work at JPL and support their Perseverance mission. And, you know, with this idea of that, we could push the boundaries of technology and unlock new capabilities. And, and the, the one that I was most interested in was becoming a multi-planet species and being able to push the boundaries of what was possible. And that came to a quick end when I dropped out of college to do my first startup and uh, never went back. I ended up uh, co-founding a startup. Uh, we ended up getting acquired. I went to a, a few more startups, either as the first employer or um, late co-founder. And then I oscillate between large companies and back to startups, mostly on the product and engineering side. Um, I started as an engineer, moved over to product and design and kind of went back and forth. Uh, trying to bridge the left side and right side of my brains. Um, and, you know, most recently before I went to venture and I, I came to Venrock, I uh, had actually co-founded a 
uh, seed fund that focused on technical founders uh, solving technical problems, um, sold to technical buyers. And you know, we came together. It was actually ten of us. Um, we were all ex-founders. We were all active operators at the time, wanting to design and build the venture process the way we wish we had it when we first raised money, in a way that investors understood and realized that founding teams are naturally incomplete, that there's naturally going to be an asymmetry in information, and that we wanted to almost bear hug the founders with complementary skills and capabilities and access to help them be successful and help them basically shorten the gap from where they were to get product market fit and then scale. Um, and that was an awesome time because it allowed us to take what we did best, was what, which was building companies and match that with founders that had mm-hmm. like-minded focuses. What, what got me there was, you know, I, I uh, had previously been at Facebook. I ran uh, I led product and engineering for the performance apps businesses. It was a $15 billion business. And before that, um, had been at Box with their VP of product and design through IPO. Uh, and before that, we sold our company to Walmart. And so we, we had seen what it took to go from zero to 1 million of ARR, to 10 million of ARR, to 100 million of ARR, to 250 million of ARR. And what were the different requirements in terms of people and culture and um, focus? So we wanted to bring that to venture. And that led me to here at Benrock, where I've been for four years now. Fascinating. So back to the beginning, the early startups, what were, what were the hard lessons you learned or mistakes that you made that you carried with you, like to the seed fund, for example? I don't think we probably have enough time to go through the list, but uh, if I were to focus on just the top few, I, I think the the biggest recurring problem we see with companies at the very early stage are one, there's a lack of clarity around the singular problem that they're going after. What is the one problem that you're in love with mm-hmm. that you know it's a big, painful problem where there's not an obvious solution that if you can solve this problem in an elegant, meaningful, effective way that the market will take as much as you could possibly offer. And would it be fair to say that too often entrepreneurs focus more on the solution than the problem? Absolutely. And it's, na- it's natural to fall in love with the solution because you're excited about the construction and the art and the science of how it came together in order to solve this problem. But what happens is you eventually lose sight of that problem. And then the scope of that solution ends up drifting. And as you drift, you become the the effectiveness or the application of that solution to the problem starts to be less and less That's uh, obvious or apparent. Yeah, if the, if the product is your north star and not the customer, then you're going to go off off chart. Of of course, right, right. It's 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 hard at the early stages when you're going through the idea maze, but it's important that you just singly focus on here's a problem we're solving. Here's a problem we're solving. This is yep. the, the thing we care about. And that problem is, has to be very customer centric to who you're solving it for. The second problem is always about market, not really understanding the market you're going into um, and not in many cases being you know an expert in that market. Who are the other players? What are the dynamics? Where are the driving factors that are changing that market that give you new company an opportunity to enter right. and, and take advantage of prevailing trend. Right. People, people aren't successful because they just stumbled into that. that that's comes from some keen insights about the market that others don't have right. or can't buy in some report. 
if I see another McKinsey report on the TAM and CAGR of a market, you know, it, it makes me want to close my laptop because you, you, you really have to think about it in a more bottoms up way that looks at the market differently than, you know, a classic analyst report. Um, and then three, I think the, the biggest lesson is, is just about having the right people at the start. You know, it, it's easy to want to pull in your friends to work with your company with you. It's easy to want to find someone that, you know, is also thinking about building a company and you come together and then you go find an idea. Building a long-term thriving company is really based on back to that number one, falling in love with some problem and then getting together with people who also share that deep love and understanding of that problem and intrinsically and intuitively know how to go about it in, in order to get to the root of it. And you know, so often you see founders interested in a space because it's, there's an interesting problem set and it draws them into it but they don't necessarily come from that space. And so it doesn't give, they might have first and second degree understanding, but when it comes to the third and fourth degree of detail and the nuances, they just don't have it. And it causes them to trip up and it causes them to create a bunch of churn in the early days and try to get the product market fit. And in those early days, you know, it's like a rocket on a launch pad, a one degree change in directory is a hundred million miles once you're in space. Mm -hmm. And so getting that right is, is critical. So do you recall, just to put some flesh on this, back to your early startup learnings, a specific instance that you can share that helped you learn one of those three problems or challenges? Yeah, I remember my very first company. We, we were building uh, autonomous avatars uh, in the virtual world Second Life. So if you remember Second Life yeah. in the 2005, 2006, it, it was it was blowing up. People would spend 12 to 14 hours a day in a virtual world, engaging with others. And it was one of the very early examples of kind of internet anonymity, being able to be whoever you want to be, um, this idea of a, your, your internet archetype. The, the problem we were originally going after was that uh, there was a virtual currency exchange happening within Second Life. And people were making real money selling virtual goods, whether it's you know, a scarcity around housing. Um, you could build a virtual house or a virtual product like clothing and so on. Um, and these virtual stores had to have these avatars, these humans really just uh, manning their stores in order to manage their transactions. And so we felt like, well, there is a way to remove the human from the loop and make this a little bit more like e-commerce, but make, have it still feel like you're, you're interacting with a real person through the transaction in order to maintain the feeling of, of the virtual world and the parallel to the, to the real world. And we uh, had built a number of prototypes. And what we realized early on was, and, and, and only looking back do you realize, is that how many stores could there possibly be in a virtual world? How many people really want to shift to an autonomous avatar? Like how big could this market get? Uh, if we had 100% penetration of every shop within a virtual world, not just Second Life, but the, the long list of them that are emerging at the time, right. could this be a billion dollar business? Uh, and I think we, we, we later realized no, but we were so in love with what we were building 
that we totally lost sight of the market, the, the, the growth potential, and whether this problem was really that painful that was worthy to pay big dollars for. It, it, it ended up that it wasn't, and the market wasn't big enough, and it wasn't painful enough, and we ended up pivoting to building a kind of contextual uh, advertising engine based on the underlying technology, which was based on kind of early NLP and, and semantics, early in the days when you know Google was just experimenting with AdSense and looking at the aboutness of a, of a website in order to determine what the right ads were going to be. And that was, you know, that was a hard lesson because we realized that hey, the path we were going down wasn't uh, a viable long-term path. And the people that we had around the table for this new path wasn't the, weren't the right people. Like we had people on the table that were artists and understood human emotion as it relates to HMI. And those were not the right people in order to go build a contextual advertising product. And so um, that was a hard pivot and and a hard lesson that you know I, I continue to, to think back to this day because there were so many nuances and how we thought about the decision and, and and how we came to it that we could have we could have avoided had we had a better mental model going into it. And again, you know, I was in my very, very early 20s. And so it was sure. it was really a, at the time about the fun and not realizing uh, right. the uh, implications of that. But important, important education, nonetheless. I mean, the, the most important lessons are the ones that you, you learn by, you know, beating your head against the wall or face plant and doing something wrong because you don't repeat it. So as uh, when you think about your time at Box and at Facebook and as in terms of leading product, as a, so as a, a product leader, what, what, how would you describe your, your style or your unique take on that? To me, I always thought about product as and, and a product leader as someone who who deeply understood and owned the problem of what we were trying to solve and the outcome, meaning the measurable outcome that we wanted to drive as a result of solving that problem. And uh, always believed that the product leader's responsibility was to make the problem very clear, very finite. And then evangelize to why this problem is the one worth solving. Because ultimately, a product leader's job is to help set the North Star, prioritize, and make the trade-offs because we know that we have limited resources and limited time. And ultimately, it's about driving the biggest business outcomes and, and, and business impact and, and, and solving important, interesting problems for our customers. And so by focusing on the one, two, or three core problems and then attaching the, the simple metrics that we want to move, both the metric and the value that we want to get to, allows for a level of clarity amongst the organization to then double-click from there and say, okay, well, if this is the problem, here's how I deconstruct it, and here's how I measure how I'm going to then move those the next level of those metrics. And we, we I, I've always deployed a method called what I always call the cascade method, which is kind of like, you know, an OKRs meets a product roadmap that allows you to understand how a single problem could turn into three different, you know, large uh, epics and then convert into, you know, a number of use cases that then teams can really focus on and ensure there's mm-hmm. never orphan, uh, orphan focus and or orphan features. And by being this kind of very problem focused centric product organization and engineering organization, um, one, it created empathy to who we were solving, what we were solving, why we were solving it for them. 
um, and it allowed the both product and engineering to get to feel closer. And so it disambiguates why we're doing something and, and, and what is the definition of done. Because if it doesn't solve the problem, then then we shouldn't be doing it in the way that we're doing it. Yeah, and it sounds and, like, and it sounds like you also took care to kind of to make the connections between the product and the outcome, right? Back to not having orphan features. I've seen situations where, you know, the developers or or anybody else inside the company who might be involved in the production of a product is not directly connected to the customer, right? It, it's it, it's one thing with Facebook where maybe everybody's a user as well, but when you're developing a product and you're not necessarily the user, you have to get creative, right? How how do you develop that empathy? Yeah, and 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 even at Facebook, you know, Facebook has two thousand teams, and if you're working on, you know, ads or within groups or events or you know, you, you're not always necessarily the direct customer as well. And mm. it's it's all about it's all about putting either creating, uh, allowing engineering and other teams to access the customers and be able to talk to them, feel it, and see it, and about sharing as much as. As, as much as we understand about the market and the customers and the problems and where it's going and how this connects to also the, the broader vision and narrative, right? It's all about, we know that in 24 months from today, this is what the experience we want to be. This is what we want customers to be able to say about what we've built. And um, having those bookends of going where we are today and where we, where we want to be in 24 months is critical because then you know how to work backwards from there. And you can deconstruct the problems that are likely to emerge as, as a result and the next set of problems that then we need to solve and sequencing it is right. And so as an engineer, if I know both where this is going to lead to in 24 months and how this is going to, and, but also where this is going to go in three months and how that is connected, I both have a, a deeper connection to the problem itself and why we're doing it. And the why is so critical. The why is so much more important than the how and, and the what. But I also can make better engineering decisions about how I, how I architect this what the data model and structure should be, what the data flow should be over time. And, and I avoid a lot of the tech debt that, that piles up with teams that don't create the framing around where this is going and how this, this sequence to get there. So glad you shared that because it's, this, is, this is real gold. For, for listeners who haven't been through this, understand it because I think people do make the mistake that they're so eager to kind of produce and and develop something and it takes discipline and creativity to develop that empathy you're talking about. And you actually have to slow down to do that so that people do have the why and they have the context to then be way more effective, but too few people actually have the discipline to do that. And from what I've seen in my experience, um, totally right. so we should probably touch on this and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of the other things you're doing, but, uh, you and I connected because of the investment in Astronomer mm -hmm. started here in Cincinnati. Can you share why you invested in Astronomer and what, and describe what it is for our listeners? So Ast Astronomer is, are the commercial developers of Apache Airflow. Apache Airflow is a project that came out of Airbnb in 2015 that turns data pipelines into code. And as we know, every company today is becoming a data company. and uh, being a data company means that you need to be able to have access to data at high velocities in order to leverage that data to make um, important business decisions. And the increased velocity and access to that data means that you have a faster iteration to make those decisions, but also access to data that you otherwise didn't have access to before. You know, if you take a step back, like we've had this thesis around the move to this kind of everything is code paradigm, 
you think about like the 1990s, we saw the introduction of the, of the GUI application. Then that led to the 2000s, where we saw the, intro the introduction of like the hosted app and a web app. In the 2010s, we saw the introduction of the cloud and services, and that was really a reinvention at the application and platform layer, right? Hardware was moved into software, as we saw with Cloudflare. Um, and we really think 2020s will be about this emergence of the programmatic infrastructure, where we, we've done such an amazing job at applying code at the application layer to make things expressive and about end states and end goals. But we haven't done that at the infrastructure layer. Uh, and the infrastructure layer up to this point, it's still, it's still been like, it, it's looked like in 2005. It's config files and scripts. It's brittle. It doesn't self-heal. It doesn't horizontally scale. And so we think there's a new generation of companies that are kind of the equivalent of what Snowflake did by taking the data warehouse and just moving into the cloud, where they're moving kind of each layer of infrastructure into code. One big area of focus for us has really been around open source, um, particularly uh, at the infrastructure layer. And um, that's how we uh, discovered and met uh, the astronomer team. When it comes to how we deliver and manage software, we still rely, as I mentioned, on these kind of manual brittle scripts to provision, deploy, configure, maintain, build, whether it's a server, a cluster, an environment, a pipeline. And what we saw was that these efforts required teams of DevOps to constantly operate, maintain, and triage in order to keep the infrastructure running. Because how we build software is something like how we build infrastructure. When we saw what Astronomer and Airflow were, were, were doing, we were just we were just blown away. One, Airflow became one of the uh, most popular open source libraries in the world, has a thousand plus contributors, you know, over ten thousand commits. Uh, I think now at twenty thousand stars, four million plus downloads. Like, and what we saw was an amazing team to come together that included both the original project maintainers, the top contributors, and really like enterprise veterans to build the enterprise version of Airflow and eventually move the entire data, data infrastructure into code. Because we know open source is built by the community for the community, which means it's not naturally enterprise ready. It's not cloud native. It doesn't plug into all the integration, doesn't have necessary security, doesn't horizontally scale. So Astronomer came together to replace the need for teams of DevOps to manage and triage these hundreds of data pipelines and turn it into a programmatic service that would auto-remediate, auto self-heal, then energy scale, kind of just abstract the whole complexity of the data pipeline. Um, and Airflow today is uh, the king of the data pipeline. Um, and it's uh, established by tens of thousands of companies and you know, every modern data stack at every modern company you know um, is most likely on and running Airflow. And that means on or will likely run Astronomer. That's amazing. And our friend Joe Otto, the CEO, uh, actually Joe and I met when he was he was uh, head of revenue for Greenplum, and I was doing Share This, and he tried to sell me Greenplum. But we were Share This was one of the first uh, AWS cloud customers, and so he was Greenplum was the previous generation business intelligence mm -hmm. company mm -hmm. that was not cloud native. Uh, so it's it's interesting how this stuff comes around, right? <laughs> so, it is totally circular. Yeah, it's amazing. So one of the interesting things, speaking of Fast Frontiers, uh, is also something that I'm really proud of, and the team is, is that Astronomer was born, uh, you know, both open source and this commercialization team in the company is here in Cincinnati. So mm -hmm. talk about 
kind of what's happening, the macro trends in terms of, and that's really unique because it's a here here it's an infrastructure company. You know, it's it's not just, it's not a fintech app or or some other business app. It's it's a core infrastructure right. company that's headquartered here now has offices in many locations. But um, talk about what you see in terms of the trends investing outside Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a a huge proponent of of investing in companies outside of Silicon Valley and and starting companies outside of Silicon Valley. You know, it, it's funny. The, the running joke uh, was that in the 2010 era, if you were, you know, a, a, a VC would say, if you're not in San Francisco, you know, you're 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 not you're you're not in tech. And you know, come COVID in 2020, and everyone is saying, well, you're in San Francisco. No, 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 you got to get the heck out. There's no engineers uh, here anymore. They're 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 just just dispersed everywhere else. You know, I think since 2015, we've been saying that we have to diversify because Silicon Valley, while an amazing hub for talent and creativity, has matured enough that it's created enough offspring that um, you, you're starting to see a lot of percolating networks across the country and across the world that are really emerging really interesting companies and drawing really interesting talent. And with with COVID, that trend, I think, accelerated by five years in, in just a few months because it we now realize that with the forcing function of, of having to work from home, that every company can operate as a remote company. And every company can operate that way in probably a more effective, efficient, and successful way. They can scale faster. They can hire from anywhere in the U.S. No longer having to hire just necessarily in limited geographies. They can go after the best people, and in many cases, those people have higher quality of life. They can move to places with lower cost of living, and are excited about what the opportunity they get to do. And so, this is how it should be. I mean, technology is all about being able to, you know, move at the speed of light and and break down barriers. And I think being able to set up shop anywhere in the world should be, should be the way to go. It's just, be, it's just becoming a really exciting time because if you're a founder, you can go set up shop in Boulder, then hire the best possible talent from anywhere in the US or the world. And you're able to get better talent that's happier that will stay with you longer. Like That seems like a no-brainer. That's an amazing opportunity for entrepreneurs who wonder whether they can you know raise capital that uh, the capital will travel now it it when i was first in venture you know we said silicon valley vcs you know not only wouldn't get on a plane but i remember talking to some partners who you know determined their portfolio by whether the company was within a 20 minute drive of their office like you know they wouldn't go from san francisco to the peninsula or you know vice versa <laughs> those days are gone it's it's crazy yeah i mean we have companies i mean vancouver portland maine Multiple in LA, Boulder, Bozeman, uh, upstate New York—you you name it. I mean, I, there's not a there's not a region in the U.S. that we don't have a, a company, and you know, it's no longer a, a limiting factor. I'm I'm happy to get on a on a plane and go spend time with founders, and you know, and now in the days of Zoom, there's no rush to have to make it from San Francisco to drive down to Palo to our office for a first pitch or to right. fly in for a first pitch, like. Let's just jump on Zoom. Let's get to know each other. And, you know, if, if, if as vaccinations roll out and, uh, 
that travel becomes more open, like it becomes more an obvious thing for on the third or fourth meeting to then fly over and spend some time together. Yeah, and and you led the Series A investment in Astronomer in May of 2020. And that was interesting because Joe and I remember talking about it because we had a board meeting, I think, in February and talked about raising that round in like second quarter. And then the COVID, you know, uh, pandemic started and and some thought, oh, we're going to have to wait 18 months, this and that. And I looked at Joe and I was like, no, let's, we, let, we, we should have all the growth. I mean, the metrics are there, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, it was great to bring you on board, but that was... That was an early investment during COVID when you couldn't meet in person. Yeah, I was going to get on a plane two weeks before. Uh, I, I remember on March 15th, I was going to go and spend some time with Joe and team in person. And then COVID tra travel advisories hit and you know, we just continued to pursue forward. And we got the deal done in the, at the end of March uh, during peak, peak uncertainty of uh, you know, what was going to happen with COVID. I mean, I think at the time we were all joking like are we gonna be back in the office on april 10th or april 12th yeah. telling joe that you know i'll probably i'll come fly up to you in, in a few weeks it'll be in, sometime in april no problem uh and still to this day it's uh we've still not met in person which is just crazy but i think looking back like if, if we went into it thinking well, well can can a remote only deal work can we make investments remote only not ever meeting the people Looking back and say unequivocally, yes, the experiment was a success. I mean, it requires a bit more time and effort in terms of the amount of time you spend on Zoom and phone calls. It requires a bit more casual phone calls and conversations because, you know, for every one hour you spend together in person, you need like three or four hours on Zoom just to understand the body language and the nonverbal communication and just to build the relationship because so much about this is, is about the the human capital and the relationship between um, the founders and the leadership team. And, and that's so much more important than just, you know, the business metrics itself. Yeah. You have to be deliberate about it. So you've come, so you've come full circle. So when you, when you started out, you wanted to go work at JPL, incredible careers, you know, leading product at Box and, and Facebook and, and others. And then, now you're at Venrock four years and you're making space investments. The, the next big frontier. How does that feel? It, it's great. I mean, it, I love it. Uh, I'm I'm so fortunate to have to be at Venrock and and I'm so grateful to be able to do this for a living and being able to support amazing founders and in, in, in building amazing thriving companies and solving really interesting problems. And you know, so much of my focus has been on hard engineering problems and um i tend to be very market centric around what where their markets that are shifting or changing or where they're meaningful you know as we talked about before big problems that aren't being addressed yet and where are their technologies that can enable that and enable to build big businesses so you know i focus as in two areas right one is this kind of cloud infrastructure developer tools tend to be open source bottoms up but the other one is around kind of frontier emerging technologies um, these are particularly around technology approaches and breakthroughs that support new category creation, and most of them, uh, particularly in those that are dual use with defense applications. So where scientific discovery risk is low, they become tractable engineering problems, um, and they can be offered as a full stack solution. So they don't sell into the supply chain. It's not a widget. Uh, it's, a, it's an end-to-end -end system or, or a solution. Uh, and most importantly, you know, really founded by world-class teams. And so there's been two areas that we've been focused on. 
Um, one is space and the other one is quantum, both where there are technology breakthroughs that enable you to build new type of companies that couldn't have been built before. And so while space and quantum can be challenging, they have long validation cycles, they can have highly, they can be highly capital intensive. We, we believe that there are inflection points happening in these areas where you can build big companies that can have a real solution to the market in the near term that are much more capital efficient. And so we've made a number of, of investments on the space side, one on, on the launch side and the other one um, on the spacecraft side, particularly um, building microsatellites um, in, in geo. And they've really been in this kind of like think different category of going after highly established markets with players in them, but in a, in a highly differentiated way. Because they're, they're kind of starting building in kind of the native new, new system, new, new infrastructure. Exactly. And, and you're able to see what attempts have worked up to that point. Like even when SpaceX launched the Falcon 1 and they went to the Falcon 9, there were a number of, of private companies that attempted to build a launch vehicle up to that point. I mean, countless. But SpaceX came to, to, to the world and say, we were going to take a very different approach. We're going to be vertically integrated. We're going to build as much of that possible in-house. And that's what allowed them to not only move faster, but um, have faster iterations. And we've kind of taken a lot of those learnings as we thought about both launch companies, as you know, we, we know there are many, um, and uh, on the spacecraft side, we think about it as those are kind of like the bookends of the space economy today. You know, spacecrafts that enable communications, which is a you know $150 billion business, and then launch, which is really about um, opening up access to space. And we know that if we're gonna have a trillion dollar space economy one day, launch has to open up in order for that to be possible. And so we're really focused on on those bookends. What what is that rough time frame you think? That's a good question. So the challenge is today we have more launch demand, more spacecrafts that want to go into orbit than we have launch capacity globally. And that means that you have to have access dedicated launch that's gonna be that needs to be available, responsive, reliable. That has to be cheap. Today the cheapest is you know 10k per kilogram on a SpaceX red share. That needs to get down to a thousand per kilogram or $500 per, per kilogram. And I think we're probably seven to 12 years away from that. I think we're going to continue to see the cost curve of launch go down. And that is going to open up a massive opportunity for more and more companies to put spacecraft into orbit and showcase new capabilities that, that we haven't been able to showcase today. So I think that's, that's, going, to, that's going to be one key area. I think the second is that we're going to see the emergence of a, a new end-to-end -end satellite architecture. Um, I think it's going to be based on microsatellites. So you're not going to see these huge satellites in orbit anymore, either in low Earth orbit or MEO or GEO or, or even deep space. You're going to see microsatellites, these smaller packages, dominate in capability and cost and responsiveness compared to large legacy satellites. And then that will eventually lead to a new architecture that will emerge that will become more standardized. Uh, you have standardized buses and common interfaces, and that'll eventually then drive down the cost curve through mass manufacturing, and eventually uh, allow to what what I would call transform it, you know, in orbit capabilities. Today, you build a fifty or five hundred million or you know billion dollar spacecraft and you put it out into orbit. That's the last time you're touching it. Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong, you know, you, you are effed. Mm -hmm. But imagine being able to do an in orbit spacecraft upgrade or repair or refuel or expand it or maneuver it that dramatically changes the asset itself. And so we're, if you think about the server 
uh, market in the 70s to today as the evolution. We went from having to build my own server in, and host it in my own data center to taking my own server, putting it in someone else's data center, and to eventually buying someone else's server and putting it in, and then eventually getting to the cloud. And we're like in that transition from that first phase to second phase of getting from the building everything myself to I get to buy others and then someone else will host it or launch it for me to eventually where I could just virtualize a piece of components as I need. And eventually you want to get to a point where if you want to enable some sort of super low latency communications network or you want something for uh, to enable for Earth observation, you shouldn't have to launch your own spacecraft. You should be able to access that data where you need it, when you need it, to virtualize means. So I think, you know, we're slowly getting there. The building blocks are coming together, but uh, it's slow. So, yeah, so if it, 7 to 10, 12 years isn't too far, but that, that's 10 to 20x reduction in cost of launch. And what, for the for the average user who's not a space investor, what's their world going to look like? You know, what does that mean in terms of those services? You talked because you talked about dual use, right? Government as as well as private. So, what do you think that world looks like? Yeah, so I think on the on the defense side. So, I'll talk about two areas. On the defense side, you know, I think we're seeing a shift that's happening within our defense priorities. They're they're moving away from bombs and bullets, you know, and anti-terrorist activities in the Middle East to this geopolitical war and arms race with China, where space is a particular focus, and it becomes it's a new domain that in some cases, we're not on the forefront. And so, you know, and you saw, you see with the emergence of Space Force um, that we need to expand beyond just major primes to satisfy rapid mission needs and resiliency. We can't just depend on Northrop and Lockheed and Boeing. Um, and so we're starting to see already more funding go into the innovation from the commercial sector, more of the commercial sector going into defense, which means that we're going to see on the defense side, uh, a disaggregation of the large space assets that we have today that are very vulnerable that, you know, one surface to orbit missile that, you know, we've seen from China and India and Russia that they have those capabilities can take out an entire major communications network for, you know, our nuclear capabilities, for example, like that's a huge problem versus being able to disaggregate that and say, well, we're going to have a constellation of hundreds of satellites that are all redundant and all providing super low latency um, communications that allow for Better, both better resiliency, but better responsiveness, which means that if one uh, gets knocked out of orbit or if there's a problem with it, I can just quickly launch another one, which means both it needs to be cheap and easy to launch another one, and it has to be small enough that I and, and compact enough that I can just deploy it from anywhere I need um, in the world and not have to spend, you know, four months shipping in, sending it up and so on. Um, and so I think that we're going to see as a result of defense spending more launch capabilities that are going to be focused on resiliency, that are going to be focused on being able to launch from austere locations on a moment's notice that won't necessarily be based on, you know, you going to SpaceX launching it, but, you know, eventually they should be able to do it on their own. Um, it should be a product and a platform, not a service. We're going to see a constellation of, of, of both communications and Earth orbit satellites that will give the military the responsiveness and capability they need that they're missing today. So that's on the defense side. On kind of, then there's the uh, exploration side, and then there's the commercial side. So, you know, on the exploration side, we're, we're seeing NASA's renewed focus on human spaceflight to the moon and Mars. Um, we're seeing a significant amount of funding going to dual use technologies to like understand like, how do we graze the land? Like, for example, when we go to 
when we go to Mars, how do we leverage the land in order to generate power? Like how do you extract, um, extract key resources in order to create fuel and extract water? Um, how do we leverage low power nuclear? How do we get to megawatt cost power, high efficiency propulsion? So we're gonna see, I think, a sharp uh, acceleration of technologies that focus there. Uh, many thanks to both NASA and to what SpaceX is doing with a focus on, on, on Mars colonization. And then third on the commercial side, you know, in, in 10 years from now, like every piece of communication should not have to be based on a terrestrial network anymore. Like we know that the, the way we connect to the first 4 billion people that are on, online today will not be the way we connect the next 3 billion people that are planning to come online over the next 10 years because of lands too far, regions too remote, climates too extreme, terrestrial ways of lying fiber in order to create cell tower networks in order to create connectivity just won't work. And so we know that that's going to have to be connected through a space network. And so every piece of communication, whether it's your cell phone, um, how we connect uh, to the internet, uh, how we access information around what's going on around us in a real-time way, will be able to be enabled through uh, a, you know, a set of in-orbit constellations that will just allow us to get more data faster in a cheaper way that will then probably emerge in a new set of industries that we're not even thinking about today. Like if I have a camera uh, that has persistence over every single street intersection in a given city, could I use that in a more real-time way to do traffic management and traffic orchestration? Probably, because today with the challenge is I don't have that data and it's too hard to consolidate it and so on. But if I can get that in real time, I could do mass traffic orchestration and literally remove and, and, and eradicate traffic altogether. Because it's really a, it's really a, it's a network problem. It's not a congestion problem. And so imagine just use cases like that that start to emerge that we're not even thinking about or are, are able to do today. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Obviously, the cost will be driven down. We'll have many, many different choices, different platforms, almost like the proliferation of social networks, right? Different types of data networks that all can interconnect and integrate. So, Ethan, this has been terrific. It's never boring when you and I get together and talk, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like there's so much more we can go into, but uh, it's incredible to see how your career has kind of come full circle and the, the exciting things you're doing. Really appreciate you and appreciate you sharing your time uh, with Fast Frontiers. Well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I really appreciate you having me. So looking forward to doing it again. again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Again, in this first week of Fast Frontier Season 3, we have three great conversations to share. You can listen to them all right now. Join us next week when we bring you our first duo episode, a conversation with Nick Kremitis at Hunt Club and Caleb Dumont of Integrity Power Search. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted. 